Welcome to the 354th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author M.O. Walsh, author of the new novel, The Big Door Prize. And stay tuned after the interview for a short excerpt from the audiobook of The Big Door Prize by M.O. Walsh. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is M.O. Walsh, author of the new novel, The Big Door Prize. Walsh's first novel, My Sunshine Away, was a New York Times bestseller and winner of the Pat Conroy Southern Book Prize. His fiction and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Oxford American, The Southern Review, American Short Fiction, and Best New American Voices, among others. M.O., welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel, The Big Door Prize, yet, how would you describe the novel? Uh, Well, I can uh, tell you what it's about. It's uh, set in a small uh, Louisiana town, a fictional town called Deerfield, Louisiana, uh, small enough to where, you know, everybody kind of goes to the same grocery store, all that knows everybody, all that type of stuff. And the novel kicks off with the appearance of a sort of strange machine at the grocery store that no one's ever seen. It looks sort of like a photo booth, you know, just sits there next to the, the coin star machine. Uh, and But what this machine promises to do is uh, take, if you give it a sample of your DNA, a little cheek swab, and put it in there, uh, it analyzes it and can tell the person sort of, uh, what their utmost potential is, sort of what their body and mind are capable of doing uh, if everything would have worked out just right in life, right? Uh, and so uh, the people in this town, you know, just sort of start trying it. And the first few people that get these readouts, a little, it's like a little blue ticket that comes out that usually just has like one word on it as to what you could be. Uh, they start trying it. And uh, like one of the first people gets one that says entrepreneur, Right. And so uh, it's sort of a strange uh, readout, but she goes and she quits her job and opens up a little um, snowball stand in town and it starts doing really well. Uh, and so people start, you know, thinking maybe there's something to this. Uh, and the next thing you know, uh, almost everybody in the town is trying it. And it's really the novel is uh, the heart of the novel is about a married couple 
who are very happily married, been together for uh, you know a long time, and uh, they each try this machine and get readouts that send them sort of emotionally in very different directions. You know, just sort of make them see uh, their their future lives uh, differently than they did before. Uh, and so that's sort of that's sort of the heart of it. That's the main thing you follow. But it's a novel that's full full of characters. I mean, you know, the town is one of the main characters, and sort of what's happening to all these people is they get these glimpses. Uh, into a new sort of vision of themselves and and if they like it if they want to pursue it or uh, you know some of the people don't like what this machine tells them so uh, it follows that as well I mean ultimately it's a uh, it sounds sort of sci-fi I guess but really it's more of a, a kind of comic and uh, I think funny and sad uh, southern novel and do you remember what was the original idea or impetus that led you to write the big door prize yeah man I, I had the idea for this uh, probably like 15 years ago or so, uh, I'd written a short story with the same premise that really only followed those two characters. And it was, you know, maybe 15 pages long or something. But uh, whenever, you know, normally when I write a story and it gets published, I don't really think about it anymore. It's sort of, you know, in the past. Um, but this is this was an idea that just never went away. And so, you know, I, I, my, I wrote my first novel, My Sunshine Away, it took me like seven years to do. And when I was finished with that, I just sort of... Uh, took about a year just kind of thinking what I wanted to do next. Uh, and that idea just never left me. And My Sunshine Away is sort of a dark uh, novel, you know, more contemplative. Um, and I wanted to try something new. And so I immediately saw, you know, some some comic possibility in this and something, an idea for maybe a, a book that's a little bit lighter and, uh, and actually was a lot of a, a fun to write. So that's sort of what happened. Well, the idea that you described, I mean, um, sounds somewhat kind of like a high concept. I'm curious, has there been any interest from Hollywood? Uh, there's uh, there's some TV interest, yes. Um, but I can't talk too much about it yet. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's an exciting idea, yeah. That's great. Well, the title of the novel originally caught my eye, and I wasn't sure until I read a little bit more. But the, the title of the novel comes from a John Prine song, and also the chapter titles are drawn from John Prine songs. Mm-hmm. How did Prine and his work influence the novel, The Big Door Prize? Yeah, well, I've been a, a fan of his for, I guess, about 20 years or so, once my wife actually introduced me to his work when, back when we were dating, when we were first start, started dating. And I never heard of him and um, I started listening to him. And at that time, I was just, I liked him mainly because his songs were easy to play. And I was learning how to play guitar. And I was like, oh, I could do this. Uh, and so I started playing it. And then over the you know ensuing decades, I quickly realized that he was absolutely one of my favorite writers in the world. It didn't matter what the you know fiction, you know poetry, songwriting. It, it he was at the top. Um, I just love so much about the way he approaches um, storytelling uh, and about the way he sort of sees the world, which to me is always. Um, you know, even though he has a lot of songs that are sad, they're honest and sad. They're not sad just for effect. They're sad because some things in life are sad. Um, but a lot of his songs seem to have this sort of wink in them. You know, he's got he's got some funny, funny lines in there. Uh, and he always seems to be able to see the humanity in people. And so whenever I was writing this book, I was about a year or so in before I had any sort of connection at all uh, to his music. Uh, and what what happened for me was, you know, I had my storyline uh, I was working on my characters, but I think all novels, at least in my experience, there comes a point where you realize, okay, I need to find some sort of overall structure to kind of put on top of this. I need to find like what's the like what's the ultimate tone of the book. I mean, 
because you can just sit there and write characters and write scenes forever. But until you sort of know what's what's my goal here, um, it, it's hard, right? You just feel like you're just out in a field, you know, just kind of wandering <laughs> around. And what I knew I wanted from this book uh, was a book that, you know, did all the things that he did and a book that celebrates, you know, our, our humanity and celebrates, you know, love. I mean, he's got a song called The Glory of True Love, you know, as sappy as it sounds. When you write like he does and you're honest about it, you can earn you know, things that sound like cliches. Right. And so like, that's what I love about him. When John Prine sings about the glory of true love, you believe it. You know, um, he says, old faithful is just a fountain compared to the glory of true love. Right. He's got a way of just making the world, um, at least to me, uh, one worth living in. Right. And so that was once I realized that I was like, you know what I'm going for? I'm I'm spending all these years here trying to match the tone of John Prine's music, which has been so important to me and sort of trying to pay back, I think, uh, in some ways through fiction, what he's you know paid to me uh, in song. And so once that happened, I was sitting there, I was writing one scene. There's a scene with the, the principal of the school who she goes, she does this, uh, this readout machine uh, and hers says Carpenter. Um, and I just, wrote, I just wrote the line, you know, she just says, well, you know, my grandpa was a carpenter. And as soon as I wrote that, I was like, wow. I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm, there might be something to this. Uh, and so I went back and I started looking at the chapters and I was like, you know, there's a John Prine lyric for almost every situation in life. Um, and sure enough, once I started thinking about it that way, uh, I could find, you know, little snippets of lines of his to match almost, almost every single chapter uh, in the book. And then ultimately, I think in spite of ourselves, which is where the title comes from, um, the chorus of that song, it's, it's one of my favorite songs of all time. It's, it was me and my wife's wedding song. I just think it's uh, such a remarkable love song that celebrates, uh, you know, how how strange and we all are, uh, yet how lucky we are to find another strange person to share our lives with. Um, and so that was that was it. Once I once I had that idea, um, I went for it. Um, and sadly, we lost Prine several months ago. I'm curious, uh, before he passed, was he aware of your manuscript and your novel? No, unfortunately not. You know, I've, I've never met him in life. And it was sort of my, my dream that, you know, maybe one day he would hold this book and, you know, just sort of know uh, what he's meant to me and my family and, um, you know, and how, how fondly I, I think of his work. We, were, we had actually written, I'd actually written a letter and we were in the process of packaging up a book with my letter to send to him. Uh, that was in April and he died April 7th. Um, so it never made it to him. Gosh. So what are your earliest memories of writing fiction? My, my earliest memories are probably, um, you know, high school. Uh, I can remember, you know, the way I always think about it is, you know, people always ask like, when, you know, when did you know you were sort of a writer? To me, I, I think I, I knew that I was different than my friends and like, you know, fifth grade or so when we would go to English class, you know, and the, would get, our teacher would get up there and read Edgar Allan Poe or something. And, and we'd leave the class and all my friends would be making fun of him. Uh, and I was and I was thinking that's like the coolest thing I've ever heard uh, in my life. I loved it. Uh, and so from an early age, I knew I had a sort of different relationship than most of my friends did to uh, stories. Right. And to reading stories. Uh, and then I remember in high school, maybe freshman year, I had a class where, you know, as part of our English class, they were like, why don't you write a, you know, you write your own short story. And so I think a lot of my, you know, a lot of my friends did this in like, you know, 20 minutes after school that day. And I just went home 
And I wrote this story that was just like really dark. And I still remember it. It's about a, a person like breaking into someone's house to masturbate under their bed. It was like really dark and twisted. Uh, and, and, and this elicited. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure your teacher loved that. Well, it elicited a call from my teacher to my mom uh, uh, saying, hey, you might want to keep an eye on your son's imagination. Um, and but but it was, you know, to be honest, I recognized, I think, at that point that I got some sort of attention for it, you know. Um, and not only that, but I also just realized I really liked it. I mean, you know, after so, you know, in college, I took workshops and all that stuff and really loved it. Then I went to get a master's degree because I thought I wanted to be like a literature professor. You know, uh, I wanted to get a master's and a Ph.D. And, and do all that. But I quickly realized in, in graduate school that I liked making stuff up way more than I liked researching stuff. Uh, and so that shifted gears from after my master's, I went and got an MFA where you could just really, you know, dive in, uh, to producing much more so than commenting, um, you know, on, on the canon. Uh, and so that was, that was great for me. It's, and it's always been the thing, uh, I love, I, you know, even though I think work is hard, like it, I'm never sitting there just, you know, typing a million words a minute thing. And this is great. You know I mean? It's always sort of a struggle. But the thing I've realized, you know, I'm in my 40s now that I've realized about the last 20 years of my life doing this is that I've, I sort of feel the best about myself kind of while I'm working. You know, I mean, time works in a weird way and I just enjoy it. Like I'll, I'll look up at the screen and it's been, you know, four hours. And I'm like, man, that, you know, that was such a great four hours, um, <laughs> you know, just just wandering this made up world, even if it's frustrating. It's just it's just I don't know. I feel good during those times. Well, you just mentioned your MFA, and I know you attended the University of Mississippi for your MFA. What was that experience like for you? Well, I mean, for me, uh, it was, it's hard, it's hard to overstate the, um, the, the way that it changed me uh, and my writing. Uh, I would not at all be uh, the writer I am t today, and I don't even mean being good. I just mean even stylistically, uh, without going to that school. And so my experience was, like I said, I was getting a master's at the University of Tennessee. I knew that I didn't want to keep doing that. And I had a, a professor there named Michael Knight, who's another, a really fine fiction writer, um, say, well, you should go get an, an MFA. And I didn't even really know that much about him at the time. Uh, he was like, well, they just started one at University of Mississippi that uh, a guy named Barry Hanna is running. And I didn't know who Barry Hanna was at that time. Uh, and he was, And I told him that and he looked at me like, I was the biggest idiot he had ever seen in his life. And he handed me a copy of a book called Airships and said, go home and read this right now. Um, and so I did. I mean, I can still remember laying on my bed uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, reading Airships for the first time. And I applied uh, like the next, you know, that next week uh, to, to Ole Miss. And luckily, luckily for me, they were just starting that program at that time. I mean, if I applied now, I probably wouldn't get in. It's such it's really a remarkable program now. Uh, but it, it, the timing was just right. And so I got there. And, you know, was very nervous to have a class with this guy. And my first class was with Barry Hanna. And he immediately sort of eviscerated uh, all my stories. And so uh, <laughs> it was, you know, I, I don't I don't think things still operate this way. I mean, I think that workshops these days are a little bit more careful with people's egos. Uh, but he was not with mine. And in a way, it was like the best thing that ever happened to me, because um, at the time I was I was writing a lot of really sort of you know, theoretical, you know, vague fiction that really was just interested in itself and how, you know, weird it could be. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Uh, and my teachers there, like Barry, I had uh, Tom Franklin, uh, Brad Watson, um, they sort of let me know, like, look, you can't, you know, you can't you can't just keep doing this and, and be vague. You have to, like, strip it down and, like, write a sentence that makes sense. I mean, you have to start with just subject, verb, object. Let's just do that first. Right. Uh, and let's see where we can where we can go. Um, and so stylistically, I had to like really, really strip it down and almost like start to learn sentences all over again. And when I look at when I look at my work now, I realize what a huge influence that was on me because there's nothing I care about more now than being clear. Uh, that's that's the main thing. I mean, if I have one goal, uh, it is to be clear. Um, and that's that would not have happened without them. Um, you know, I think another thing that happens uh, in an MFA program is you start reading contemporary writers. You know, I think in college, all I read was, you know, the Faulkners and the, you know, all the people that are sort of, you know, in, in the canon, right? Uh, and then I get to my MFA and you meet uh, not only professors, but other students who are big readers. And so that was around the time, like when uh, George Saunders just had like Civil War Land and Bad Decline and Pastorelia coming out. Uh, Adam Johnson's first book, Emporium, was out. Um, you know, I got, uh, you know, there were just all sorts of books that were happening now uh, that I, that I got to read Amy Bender, uh, the girl in the flammable skirt, uh, books like that just broke me open. Uh, and it was the type of thing where I was like, wow, there, this is, this is the conversation I'm really in. I'm not in a conversation, you know, with people that have been dead for a hundred years. Uh, I'm not in a conversation even with Carver or anybody like that. Uh, you know, if I want to write now, I'm in a conversation with people that are putting books out right now. Um, and so that was really helpful in that way as well. Well, you teach writing at the University of New Orleans currently. I'm sure you have lots of thoughts about writing, but what advice would you offer for those who are listening who are writing their own stories and novels? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a ton, uh, you, know, <laughs> um, you know, and sometimes that's the that's the problem. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I tell my students, you know, if if all you're doing is reading a different craft essay, you're reading like five craft es essays a week you're not going to get anywhere because all you're doing is getting a bunch of different advice that lots, lots of times is sort of in conflict with other advice. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's good to read a little bit of that stuff. Uh, but then, 
what you really have to do, and everyone's going to tell you this, is you got to read other books, first of all, not craft essays, but other books. You got to find out what what you like um, and, and then start thinking about why do you like it? Uh, and then once you do that, you start thinking about, OK, well, what kind of book do you know, do I want to write? What what book do I think like needs to be in, in the world? Right. Um, but as far as the actual writing advice, I would have two sort of practical things. Right. Um, the first one is what I was saying earlier. You know, your 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 job as a writer uh, is to make, you know, a stranger see something, uh, you know, only using the alphabet. <laughs> which is a pretty strange thing. And so uh, there's lots of things that are really hard about fiction writing, um, but some things are easy, okay? And the easy thing is to write a sentence, uh, you know, that is straightforward and clear, uh, is not overcomplicated. Uh, anytime you can do something that's easy, like, for example, uh, a, a clause like the next Tuesday, comma, right? Uh, do that, do the easy thing, okay? Because there's so much, there's so much about writing that's hard. When you can do something easy, take advantage of it. Okay, uh, so that's one one thing. And the other thing would be it's it's not as practical. It's I guess a little bit more philosophical. But um, what I find most writers do, and when they're just starting out, and what I did forever was just sort of uh, try to copy the people I liked. Right. Uh, so if I if I read a Barry Hanna story, for instance, since we mentioned him earlier, I would go try to write a story that sounded like him, uh, and ultimately it would fail. Uh, every time. Right. Uh, if I read, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Pick pick it out. If I go try to copy it, it doesn't work. OK. So even though I know there's always a short sort of apprentice, you know, uh, phase where you're sort of copying styles and things, whenever it's time for you to write your book, uh, the thing that you have to do is recognize that, you know, everyone on the you know, everyone can write if they sit down and, and practice it. Right. I mean, every, my, my kids are in, in eight and 12 years old. They can write. OK. But the thing that's going to make your book interesting and make people want to read it is if you recognize that the most interesting thing about you is that there is no one else on the planet exactly like you. OK, that's the advantage that you have. Uh, and that's the only one. Right. So what you need to do is fully embrace who you are and all of its strangeness and all of its contradictions, you know, and all in all of it. Um, and that's really the only chance you have, because just just writing People can learn it, right? Uh, but no one can be you. And it takes, I think, a long time uh, for a lot of writers to fully sort of uh, believe in themselves and, and trust their ideas. Um, and, and that's that. That would be my advice. You got to do it because that's no one's looking for the next Faulkner, right? They're looking for the like the new you. Um, and so you got to embrace it. And so, are you still writing short stories as well as your novels? Um, not, no, not as often. Um, I think I've maybe written like two stories in like the last four or five years. I mean, my thing is whenever I get on a novel and I never knew I would be like this, the, you know, my MFA, my first book is a collection of stories. And that was primarily what I was doing in my MFA, writing short stories. I didn't know if I'd ever write a novel, but I wanted to try it. And I, you know, I tried a couple that, that failed and I didn't finish them and all that. And then once I got into my sunshine away and recognized that it was something I was going to finish. Um, since then, the the novel form to me has been uh, just more attractive. I just I like the I like the puzzle of it. I like the long stretch. Um, I like you know I'm a person with writing. I'm a person that likes to have a secret, you know. So I, I don't talk to people about what I'm working on during the process. Um, I like I like that space of not having any other voices at all in my head when I'm in the middle of something. 
And what a novel affords you to do is be like that for several years. <laughs> and, and that feels and that feels good because I know what I'm doing. And uh, but I don't want someone else to tell me I'm crazy uh, before I prove it myself. You know, sure. Well, without talking about it, are you working on another novel now? I have. Yeah, I've I've started on something, but I have, okay. no, I have no idea. Uh, you know, and again, talking about old ideas, this is an idea I had even before the idea for the big door prize. But it's one that has never gone away. And uh, it's one that I always previously felt I wasn't sort of ready to write. Um, and so I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it now. I've got the first chapter. Uh, and I hope I mean, I hope it's OK, man. But you really never know. That's what I'm saying. It's going to take a long time before I know. Sure. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Uh, well, I mean, there there's lots. I mean, I'm trying to think of the things that in terms of like, what did, what did I enjoy that ended up sort of influencing this book? Um, I rec- I realized a couple years ago or a few years ago that I really like funny novels. And I felt like for for most of my schooling, I didn't know I was like allowed to do that. Like I didn't know, I didn't know that, I didn't know that funny novels could also be literary. You know, I mean, I thought, I thought literary fiction had to be very sort of serious uh, all the time. And then, you know, I started, I came across like a book like Richard Russo's Straight Man, right. Um, Which is really well written, but just hilarious. Uh, And then I I read um, like the end of vandalism by Tom Drury, which I found hilarious um, I read, I'm trying to think of some of the other just really funny books, um, I've read recently, um, Stephen Rowley's, uh, Lily and the Octopus, which is hilarious and sad. Uh, and I, I started realizing, man, I love it. I love a book that can make me laugh and then also just rip my heart out. Right. I mean, anytime they're both doing both of those things, um, that to me is my favorite reading experience. And, and probably the most important writer to me is a guy named Lewis Norton from Mississippi who, who he died a while ago, but, uh, his work does that, does that. And I was always so attracted to, to his work. Uh, and so those are some of the things that really, I think, influence this book. Um, as far as, you know, things I've read lately, I've been lucky enough to be doing book tour stuff and having interviews with other writers, you know, in, in the Zoom land. Now, this is how they do book tours. It's, it's interviews. Uh, and so I got to read uh, Jamie Poisson, or David James Poisson is his full name, his new novel, Lake Life, uh, which I think is great. Uh, I got to read The Everlasting by Katie Simpson Smith. I got to read some go home by Odie Lindsay. Um, they're all all excellent. Um, and then every once in a while, I like to, you know, I get I'm on Twitter. You know, unfortunately, it's probably part of the brain damage I have right now. Uh, but the, the good thing about Twitter is that writers talk about other books that they like, right? Um, and so I started hearing about this book called Blacktop Wasteland by a guy named uh, S. A. Cosby. Uh, and I don't really read a lot of crime stuff, so I was kind of like, well, I'm just going to check it out. Uh, and I thought it was a tremendous book, um, you know, really great. And it was great to sort of step out of my, you know, normal reading habits and read a crime novel. Um, so I thought that was great. Um, and other than that, I'm typically trying to find something weird every once in a while. You know, like I said, I love my, you know, my Amy Benders and, you know, people like yeah. that just don't seem to really have any sort of tether to the reality that uh, most of us do. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Uh, I've got uh, a website. Just, uh, it's M O. My last name is Walsh. W A L S H dot com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at M underscore O underscore Walsh. Um, I have a Facebook page. Uh, yeah, I'm around in all in all those places. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with M O Walsh, author of the new novel, The Big Door Prize. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And M O, thanks for doing this interview. 
No, thank you. This is great. When y'all do things like this for writers, you just don't understand how much we appreciate it. Just thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And now stay tuned for a short excerpt from the audiobook of The Big Door Prize by M.O. Walsh, narrated by Sean Pratt, published by Penguin Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Through the door walked a man neither Douglas nor Pete immediately recognized. He looked to be from a different era. He had on a cowboy getup with a big brimmed hat, and his boots clicked the concrete floor as he strutted up to the bar. It was an unnatural walk, there was no doubt about it. His legs were parted in an odd manner, spread a bit too far, as if maybe he was trying to scratch an itch without his hands. He sidled up to the end of the bar and hooked his thumb through his belt loop, did a little scan of the place, and tipped his hat to Collie, who stood up to greet him. Miss Collie, he said. Mayor, she said. It's just Hank tonight, Hank told her. The working day is done. That must be nice, she said. When the bar door closed and the dimness returned, both Douglas and Pete recognized that the man was Hank Rishu, and Pete waved him over. Hank obliged. Hank, Pete said. You sure do look festive. Hank shook his hand. Father, he said. It's just Pete tonight, Pete said but I have to admit you're making me feel a bit self-conscious. I'm the only guy in here not wearing a hat. The three men appraised themselves, and this was true. Hank in his Stetson, Douglas in his beret, and Pete there in the middle. They made a little landscape of possibility lined up like that, as if, as a unit, the picture of them could exist nearly anywhere and at any time in history. Had Deerfield ever held such promise? Who could know? You know Doug Hubbard? Pete asked. He teaches history at the school. One of the actual geniuses in this town, from what I hear. Douglas leaned over to shake Hank's hand. He was becoming outwardly drunk, this was obvious, and looked a bit put out at this unexpected amount of social interaction. I know, Hubbard, Hank said. Sure shooting. I forget that everybody knows everybody here, Pete said. Or, Douglas said, as if making a profound statement, they like to think they do. Hank pulled a coin out of his pocket and tapped it on the bar. So, what are you fellers drinking tonight? He said. I need a suggestion. I, for one, recommend alcohol, Douglas said. From her stool, without looking up, Collie said, I second that. Hubbard, Hank said, you teach history, right? I have a question for you. How about you tell me what kind of drink would be historically accurate for a cowboy to order? Douglas felt his teacher mode coming on again. Was even the mayor a witless victim of that stupid DNA machine which Douglas had been privately stewing about the past hour? Could that account for his ridiculous new accent? His asinine hat? Why do you ask, Hank? Douglas said. Are you suddenly under the insane impression that you're meant to be a cowboy? No, Hank said, although the way he said this made it obvious that this was perhaps the exact impression he was under. I've just taken an interest, is all. Call it historical curiosity. Well, Douglas said, 
I don't know how to answer your question, since the term cowboy isn't really a historical reference. I mean, it's not a time period, Hank. It's a person's occupation. That's true, Pete said, and trying to get Carly's attention by clinking around the ice in his glass. You know what I mean, though, Hank said. Real cowboys. Wild West types. True grit. The fistful of ugly. The fast and the furious. All that stuff. Can I have another one of those soda waters, Miss Carly? Pete said. Just like I made it before? She asked. Please, Pete said, and laid another ten on the bar. That's some expensive soda water, Hank said. Charity, Pete said, before the need for it. Well, Douglas said, a fistful of dollars is said in the 1870s or so. Is it? Hank said. It takes place during the Civil War, Douglas told him. That's the major part of the movie. That's not hard to remember. A war amongst ourselves, Hank said. What a dadgum tragedy. Amen to that, Pete said, and lifted his empty glass. Never again. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.